Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode. Today we have on the show Paul Saro. This, I guess, for context, on this show we interview a single uh, expert or analyst to discuss one stock. And today we're talking about Exponential Fitness. Pretty fascinating company. I, it's kind of a, I guess you could call it a conglomerate. Maybe well, roll, roll up, roll up, a roll up was probably a better a, term. It's a franchise model for boutique fitness studios. If that doesn't get you excited, Ooh. I don't know. It will either way though. We've been finding lately a lot of people um, that are, that know, or want to pitch stocks that personally we haven't heard of. And I think a lot of people haven't heard of, but are really, really interesting models. I think about Haggerty, which would have come out two weeks ago from when you're going to hear this or Playway about a month before that. Those are ones that a lot of people haven't heard about, but have these really interesting models that are quite profitable and uh, exponential fitness kind of in line with those. And it's the kind of area where you can find really good returns as an investor. Uh, but before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our sponsor for the episode. It is Common Stock. So I'll give, I know Brett has been posting a little more often on Common Stock, so I'll let you talk about that, but I'll give sort of the, the elevator pitch. They are a community of experienced traders and investors, uh, and they're the only social investing platform that lets you connect your existing brokerage account so you can actually validate whether people are uh, full of it or not, or actually... Uh, giving what they're truly doing. Um, and they call it sort of a Bloomberg terminal for Main Street. I like that idea. It's a lot like Twitter, but uh, yeah, FinTwit, perfect. But more yeah, involved. we talk about some products here that might be more for professional investors. If you're an individual, this is a perfect product for you. Um, there's talk a lot about of, your experience. Yeah, so I've been posting on there uh, just in conjunction with our podcast releases, kind of throwing out some questions we might have had while we recorded something, get some conversation going. And it's nice. Um, the community is building up it's a lot bigger than it was, say, a year ago, which is great. And yeah, you get a lot of people, um, you know, posting sub stacks, posting good write-ups themselves there, asking good discussion questions. You can learn a lot and also maybe, you know, get some feedback on anything you've written. Uh, so either while you're, if you're looking for research or trying to grow your own research or share something that you did, it's a perfect place for both. That's a good interaction. Okay, perfect. And visit commonstock.com to join. Uh, I believe you can also look up the app on the app store, but commonstock.com. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Today, we are welcomed by Paul Saro. He is a portfolio manager or the portfolio manager at Cedar Grove Capital Management. We met through Twitter uh, and I saw you, I think, in the in the mentions of it, we're, it, it was talking about like F45 Fitness and you said, no, you got to check out this 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 other company, Exponential Fitness. Um, and then I kind of got put onto your Substack. But before we get into what Exponential Fitness is, can you kind of give us your background, uh, what Cedar Grove is, what's kind of your strategy as an investor? Yeah, of course. So I started off like I had a college, I worked at Merrill Lynch in investment banking, covering the consumer goods and retail group. So it's anything from 
going inside of a store to purchase things or online. Uh, my specialty back then was in restaurants, fitness, uh, luxury retail, and also cannabis. Um, that was when it like, really came to market. Uh, so when I started Cedar Grove Capital, it was mainly because of you know a few few beneficiaries that were like, you know what, you have some pretty good ideas. Let's, uh, let's throw some money behind you. And our area of focus is a long short strategy. Um, specifically geared towards the CNR space and cannabis. And now that, you know, it's 2022 at this point, right? So a lot of consumer companies have some type of tech component or online component to them. So we kind of stretch that out to any type of technology company that can directly interact with a consumer. Um, so it's kind of like two main core areas of focus with like a third if you kind of push it. Um, and uh, there's really no cap on the type of uh, market cap focus, what type of subsectors. It's just there's an opportunity within those spaces. And we'll take a look at it. How did you find Exponential? How did you come across it? Because I don't think anyone's heard of Exponential. They may have heard of some of the uh, companies under the umbrella. But uh, how did you come across it? Yeah, so actually back in my investment banking days, uh, it was it was an actual client of ours. Um, this was years ago, and me being the analyst back then, it was like, hey, you know what? Like they're they're potentially looking to IPO. We might be have an opportunity to be the book runner for it. And we uh, we left on it. And so one of my one of my last I guess projects that I did before leaving was putting together a pitch deck uh, for management to potentially IPO at that current point in time. Uh, they they did not so that that deal got shot down when I was a was a banker. But then last summer, um, I got basically an article flown through me that they had filed for an IPO in summer of 2021. And as soon as I saw that, I wanted to just double check uh, if anything everything still made sense from when I last saw it, and it did. And I was more than excited to to hop back on that bandwagon. And can you explain what they do and how how it isn't a traditional gym operator, obviously. So how does it differ from the typical uh, gym-based company? Yeah, so Exponential Fitness is actually like the parent company. And they are a fully franchised uh, boutique fitness um, company. So they, don't, they actually do not own or operate any uh, franchises. Uh, to, to caveat that, they have in the past, but that's because they just purchased some from uh, previous franchisees and kind of turn them around and repackage them and resold them. But their, their core business model is we don't hold it, we just sell licenses. Um, and they're different from a traditional gym operator. If you were to compare it to like a Planet Fitness, Planet Fitness is, uh, you know, you go to the gym, there's like hardcore, I mean, not Planet Fitness, but there's, there's a lot of equipment there. There's like treadmills, there's, you know, like dumbbells, et cetera. And um, that's great for certain people, but Exponential kind of took it a different approach. And instead of having it as traditional gym equipment, they essentially teach classes based on certain aspects of what you're trying to accomplish in parts of the body uh, to people who want to go there in person and not try to get like lose weight or get bulk bulky. You know, they're they're more so like focused on um, like movement, um, compound exercises, etc. That just don't involve um, lifting heavy weights. Can you talk about some of the what what those the names of some of those subsidiaries are. Yeah. So every, well, I'm going to say everybody, a lot of people should hopefully um, know a few of them, but 
for those out there, uh, some of the classic ones are Pure Bar, um, Club Pilates. Uh, in New York City, which was really big, uh, prior to the pandemic was like Rumble, the Rumble Studios, um, Dave, uh, Yoga 6, Stretch Lab. Um, there's a lot of different uh, boutiques concepts that they technically own uh, that they've rolled up into this exponential parent company. Have you visited any of these locations as a customer? Yeah, you know, because uh, in 2019, before New York City went into lockdown and a very long quarantine, uh, Rumble was actually like one of the hottest things. Like if you if you brought that up in conversation, like, yeah, I'm going to Rumble, A, people were like, whoa, you got money. And then number two, um, it was like such a millennial thing here in New York City that everybody just wanted to try it. And there was like kind of two concepts. One was Rumble uh, a Tread, which is basically... You, you do half running and then half like weightlifting. And when I say weightlifting, it's something just like a 20 pound dumbbell. And then there's another one where it was rumble boxing, uh, where that's where you got to like literally go in with boxing gloves, like punch some bags, and then also do uh, uh, like a concept of like hit training on top of that. So I've been to that one. Uh, I've had friends go to Pure Bar. Um, they are mainly women, but they go to Pure Bar. Um, those who love Pilates, those who club Pilates. Um, so that it seems that what they've done, um, especially especially me, they found a home for anybody who wants to experience that type of uh, this fitness exercise. Yeah, that makes sense. And we're going to get to financials, but one more just quick question: Do they uh, do they have like a yoga type brand as well, or are they only in these Pilates and bar stuff? Yeah, they have, they have one. It's called Yoga yeah. Six. Um, that's that's where they offer yoga classes as well. Is is there a um, subsidiary that accounts for the majority of their studios or the, or their business, or is it kind of pretty well diversified? So it actually it actually started off with um, Club Pilates, and then over time they just kept rolling up. Uh, existing and then new boutique fitness concepts. So it does lean more to heavier towards the original OG uh, concepts that they started with, aka Pure Bar being one of them, Pilates another. Um, so uh, as they continue to roll on new acquisitions, like most recently was uh, Body Fit Training, and everyone was was Rumble. Um, depending on what the market is, you know they'll hopefully ramp those up on equal weighting to others but as of right now it's still heavily weighted to the beginning concepts gotcha and we'll get to the your thoughts on the roll-up strategy and how maybe investors should look at that but i think the most important thing to go through now because it's such a unique model um can you go through the unit economics i know they have a lot of different revenue streams um you know what does it cost for a franchisee to pay for this and what does exponential fitness get you know back from it yeah, so considering it is a fully franchised model, um, they, they make money by a selling licenses um, and then the royalty revenues from that. And they'll have like to have some miscellaneous stuff as well. So if we're, if we're going down how they actually make money. Um, so if you look at their, their revenue line, it's really four main things. One is the royalty revenue, which is 7% off the top. Uh, that's just for every licensee who has revenue that gets the 7% off the top. They have an additional 2% marketing fee that goes along with most franchise concepts that have to you know, get the name out there. Uh, they have um, other revenue, which is basically uh, their digital uh, offerings. So their on-demand video classes um, and their concept library that is, is uh, static. Um, and then if the fitness uh, concept does require equipment, 
Um, it's not going to be like a, a Planet Fitness type level, but they do sell the equipment that is necessary to put into those uh, fitness studios. So those are really the four, I guess, ongoing um, revenue drivers, uh, but then they get the immediate revenue from the actual licenses, the licenses that they sell. And I'm assuming the franchise licenses are the main uh, gross profit driver. Like they have the highest gross margins or is, cause like the equipment, are they, are they selling that at cost or are they trying to make money on that as well? No, I mean, you're right. I mean, when they're selling the licenses, that's basically like a hundred percent flow through. Um, there's really no associated costs with that. Uh, if you think about it, I mean, the only, the only real cost that you're paying is just the salesperson grab the salad. If that's what, you know, they're, they're, they're going at. Um, for the rent, for the equipment, it's not, they're really not trying to make money on it. It's more so just like a function of them doing business with franchisees that just need the equipment. They can just facilitate it. Um, and they do offer, it's very minuscule, but it's like the apparel that could be sold in those studios. Like they do offer that. Is it a driver? Like not really. It's more like nice to have. Um, but their core is really off of that, that loyalty revenue and that marketing fee. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, and uh, you might have mentioned it, but what are they paying on like an annual basis, monthly basis, all up front, uh, or a mix of both on, you know, for the, the people when they're buying a license to operate one of these studios? Yeah, so whenever, so it's, it's actually a good point you bring that up because when they sell licenses um, in North America. They basically like amortize the, um, the, uh, the revenue off of that over a certain amount of years. But what's interesting is that when they do it internationally, uh, just because of the, the accounting rules abroad, uh, whenever they sell that, because they're selling it to like a master franchiser, they actually can recognize the revenue 100% upfront. Um, so as they continue to sell those licenses abroad, you're, you're seeing like a massive like pull forward immediately just because of the fact that like that's just the way the accounting system works over there. Whereas um, once they sell the licenses to North America, they have to you know amortize it. Um, but then the franchisees, I believe they pay it on uh, an annual basis, um, if I remember correctly. But that's this one important call that I'm actually glad you brought you brought up. What is the uh, what is the franchisees payback look like? I mean, how how what's the incentive for them? Like uh, how much are they earning, let's say in like year five uh, versus how much they pay up front? Yeah. So depending on what concept you choose and, you know, they have 10 brands, they range anywhere from a very capital light uh, model. So like you're talking about like a yoga, a boutique yoga studio, you're really not using too much equipment to do that. Right. If you're talking about um, like a rumble or a body fit training where you're going to need, some pretty some pretty heavy equipment in there. Uh, the capital investment changes, but if we're talking about like kind of what they've pitched, uh, so their their plan is essentially hoping to drive about half a million dollars in AUV for the franchisee, and um, with a presumed like twenty five to thirty percent of EBITDA margins. So if you kind of do the math on that, you're taking like a two year cash on cash return of about like forty percent. 
again, depending on what kind of concepts you, you're, you're looking for. Uh, and then, uh, which I know we'll, we'll touch base a little bit later, um, having this new omni-channel approach to people who go in person and just want to do things from home, the franchisee signs up for that type of plan. They can also get a cut of the digital revenue as well should um, the, I guess, customer sign up for that as well. So it's it can, it can get rolled up, um, but the, the plan is to get the franchisee to at least half a million dollars and run rate AUD. All right, that makes sense. Uh, let's talk a little bit on their margins. They have invested heavily over the last few years. Pandemic has been, you know, obviously for business like this was a bit tricky, uh, but they've gotten through it. What, or maybe the next few years, I don't know, what sort of operating leverage do you expect this business to get to? And maybe if they're still reinvesting um, at maturity, whenever that is, what kind of margins, either cash flow? EBIT, whatever, can this business have? Yeah, so it's it's really great because the reason why I, I fell in love with this company in the first place is because since it is not an owner and operator, they just make their money off of making sure they sell enough licenses to continue growth and then helping the franchisee scale their average unit volume. So um, when we're looking at their, their, the leverage that they can essentially obtain, uh, if you're fixed, if you really have no variable costs and your fixed costs are essentially your your uh, your SGNA over time, you know, as your top line keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger from the new licenses that you sell, the more franchisees that you get on board, the more you can optimize said franchisees. Your top line keeps growing, but your, your core expenses like SGNA are, are really not going to be growing as fast as your top line revenue. So, because of that fact, you're going to be seeing like huge margin expansion that's going to be occurring. Um, you know, assuming that marketing expenses stay the same just from, from, from the sheer side, because you just don't need that many people to operate a business that you're not actually operating. You're just running the company. Um, so the, like management has, in, in recent transcripts, noted that they're kind of targeting uh, over 40% as uh, EBITDA margins. Right now, they're not, they're not quite there. Um, they are projecting, like this year, for instance, um, they're, kind of, they're going to be jumping from about 17% to just over 32% margins. So if you think about a one-year difference, you're, you're, you're almost doubling your EBITDA margin expansion um, just, from the fear, just from the sheer size of your, your, your business growing. Um, and they didn't know, and I will caveat this, they didn't know because, uh, like I mentioned earlier, they have operated some studios in the past, but only to repurpose them and sell them. That, a large benefit of that also comes from them not having to pay the employees straight up anymore because they've, they've sold it to a franchisee, it's off their hands, it's off the books, um, so they can recognize uh, a little bit more Delta uh, sooner rather than later. Okay. And uh, Ryan, you want to just want What are their primary costs? Just personnel or like... Do they have R&D yes. for this tech stuff too, the, te- the app and technology rollout? Is that part of it? Yeah, so they have the SGNA that's just a blanket from across everything that you need from the business. They have the marketing costs that are associated with getting the, getting the brands out there, which depending on um, location and uh, what concept you're actually marketing, it, it varies. Um, but then the other thing that they really did push it into, which is a really smart move, was uh, their digital approach to fitness. So um, pre-pandemic, in-person was the thing. Digitally, it wasn't that big. Maybe some people dabbled in it. But in a post-COVID world, uh, even during COVID world, they recognize like, hey, like if in-person is not going to be a thing for a while, you know, we got to we got to put some money behind digital, and that's exactly what they did. They uh, 
they launched uh, X Plus, um, which is essentially their digital video library of workouts, which you can pay for, sign up, and do them at your home. And then they also offered um, X Plus, or sorry, X Pass, which is the um, video on demand uh, option while being able to um, go in person to studios and try different concepts without actually being married to one uh, brand. Um, so this push, it did, it did take a lot of money, um, but uh, if you think about how it's going to be normalized in the future, because you know, they're not going to be spending up on the initial build out, it's more so of like upkeep and optimizing. So it's more like a maintenance type of spend more than it is a brand new concept at this point. What are your thoughts on the roll-up strategy and what, what kind of multiples have they paid in the past for their acquisitions? Yeah, so I love this strategy. I think I know you mentioned at the beginning when it comes to F forty five fitness. Um, I was actually looking at that as well. We, we we had we actually owned both of them at the beginning of the year, and just from being able to decide like maybe you should hold one rather than both, uh, we ended up dropping F forty five, which for for a, a decent gain before it completely collapsed. Um, and the diff- the real difference is because F forty five is a one fitness concept. It is. It's a workout for 45 minutes, stacked by Mark Wahlberg. That's it. Um, hook, line, sinker. But then if you fast forward to Exponential, you have a, what I like to call it, is a, essentially a pseudo fitness ETF, right? You have this one company that just owns different brands that with different concepts inside of it. And they essentially kind of act like a hedge against any type of uh, concerns that come in about, you know, being overexposed to one area or the other, um, they've, they've realized that, Hey, you know what, like there's more, uh, fitness concepts come to market and more consumer tastes change. We have the ability to act on it relatively quickly, roll it up into our overall brand, help them scale, help them grow and, um, reduce the risk on our side without having to, um, worry about, uh, overarching trends that can really damage the business. So I love the idea of it. When it comes to multiples, they've been pretty hush-hush about it. Um, I wouldn't say they're too crazy, especially considering the fact that they know kind of where these brands can go with just like a little bit of gasoline to the fire. So if we look at the most recent one, Body Fit Training, for instance, they paid like $44 million uh, for the for the brand. Um, if she had to put like rough like revenue estimates to it, it you're, you're looking at like a, probably like a five times sales multiple on that. Um, which I, which I would not say is, is crazy. Um, just because of the sheer, just because of the fact that like once they paid for it, they've sold hundreds of licenses of it already. Um, so it's, it's goes back to my, my uh, comment about, you know, pouring a little gasoline to something right now is worth spending a little bit more money if you're just going to get your know, the rewards pretty early on. Okay. And is the, one of the core parts of your thesis, this diversification strategy where they're not exposed to say the loss of a trendiness of a fad, like, um, well, like a P90X or an orange theory, I know orange theory is still popular or a Peloton or something like that. Is that really a core part of the thesis here of how this can be the better fitness asset to own than a lot? I know there's, there's quite a, there's a few out there in the public markets. Yeah. So it's actually a little bit of both. Um, but if I had to apply a weight towards one side or the other, it's, it, it's, it's a matter of me being more comfortable with it 
matter than me being like, this is a growth driver. Um, and the reason why that is, from what I mentioned before, I mean, talking about the consumer taste, consumer taste changing, uh, it, can, it can really destroy the business, which we've seen with the Peloton, we've seen with that 45, we've seen with other, with other players. Um, so is it a growth driver? No, but it definitely does help because I believe that since management is very conscious of the fact, um, they know that they can't just be a one, two, three branded company. Um, they can be bigger. They will need to be bigger if they want to be able to grow to the size that they potentially can't be. Uh, so that's kind of where I've seen it. It's more so in downside protection than more upside. That's what, yeah, it feels like that's one thing that's always kept me away from the fitness category is it seems like I, I'm always convinced like, well, this could be the, you know, well, the if history, if you're thing. a student of history, that yeah. them would die eventually. or else P90X would be a monster still. But I, I don't think, I don't think that's still around. Maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, the, uh, yeah he, he, it's funny. He actually made a basically a, a, a P90X like 2.0 because the sales of the OG P90X were dropping because, you know, it had that initial spike, like, Oh, I want to work out like a Navy SEAL. I want to get cut like a Navy SEAL. And then when sales started dropping, um, that's when he went ahead and made the 2.0 version. It didn't do as well, but um, that was a try. That was a, a try to uh, revive that kind of brand. Um, I think it eventually just died, but he tried. I give him that. Yeah, and uh, we're. I guess you, you're you follow the fitness industry closely. A lot of people have seen the rise and fall of Peloton. Um, how? From your point of view, maybe anything that exponential fitness management has been saying, how has fitness really changed since the pandemic? Are we, do you think we're going back to what 2019 was and just kind of going like this blank period and then reverting back? Or uh, have there been any lasting changes, maybe the that home technology and uh, the app-based subscriptions? Yeah, so I actually published an article about this in the beginning of January, which actually coincided with um, the research that I published on exponential. And um it's funny because in 2019, I was, I mean, I was hard into fitness in 2019. I was working out uh, an hour in the morning and like two hours after work, so like three hours a day religiously because um, I was so obsessed with it. And that was just the way it was. And when you talk to people who wanted to use an app, they were like, why, why not just go in person? But then as soon as COVID hit, it completely changed everything. Um, so that's when all the stay-at-home models blew up, right? We know Peloton went, I think it was... I think before we went into quarantine, it's like $50 a share, cap, uh, capped out at like $150, a little bit, or, a little bit more than that. Because that was, that, was, that was the new thing. That was what the future was. No one's ever going to go back to the gym. No one's ever going to go to in person again. It's, the home is just better. And a lot of these incumbents, so you know, your Planet Fitnesses, your other, uh, like Gold's Gym, uh, your sports club, like all the other places that had the ability to kind of go online quickly ramped up an online presence because it's either do or die at that moment. Um, but what was interesting, and this is, this is the play that I have and you know, full disclosure, I actually have the long position in exponential, but I'm also short Peloton still. <laughs> um, so it's, it's kind of a, a pair trade there because I was betting on reopening being way more powerful than I guess anybody kind of really pictured and being in New York city, it's, I guess it's kind of an advantage because you kind of see how people were so cooped up inside and how over they were being cooped inside that they Especially were begging. The, yeah, with the density of the population, right? Oh my God, begging to go just outside to do anything. Like, I don't want to be in my apartment anymore. And I also have my friends who were diehard Peloton fans that, you know, they bought the, the bike in, in COVID. They were riding it like 
three, four times a day. And even they were saying, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of over it. I want to go, I want to go out into the real world. I want to go, even I want to go interact with people that I don't even care that I'm interacting with them for, which is basically then going outside into this reading in the, in the world. Um, so whenever I did my research, it was a combination of like what I was doing, because I'm very big into fitness, what my friends are doing, because they also have a lot of similarities. And then honestly, I was <laughs> I was going down the uh down certain parts of New York City here with just my phone on the notes app. And I was just asking people like general questions about how they how they how their fitness tastes have essentially changed from pre, during, and post-pandemic, just on my phone. Um, and luckily they were able to give me real insights to the fact that like, Hey, there's some real, there's some real, uh, demand here for in-person again, more than what all these sell side guys are basically saying. Um, so that's when, you know, I, I went long, uh, exponential uh, on top of the other stuff. And then recently went short Peloton just because it's just easy money at that point. Um, but tastes are not one side or the other. It's going to be omni-channel going forward. And depending on where you are, like maybe in an urban city or a suburban area, um, optionality will be key. And players that can give optionality will be successful going forward. Um, if you lean towards one or the other, I don't believe you're going to have too much of an advantage there. Another thing you talked about in your article was the, um, the contraction of supply from COVID. Can you talk about that and how that benefits Exponential? Yeah, so I'm very big small business. So it's, it's unfortunate to see um, businesses close during the pandemic, uh, especially in the city. It's almost as if everybody just left. Um, but if you think about the, the gyms and fitness studios that were going on in the country, uh, a lot of them, due to COVID restrictions, could not be open. So even if I wanted to, I literally could not go to them. And we had so many articles in the past where like people like broke rules and regulations to just have their doors open to attract business. But unfortunately, a lot of them closed. So if you think about the population in the United States who were going to, to work out pre-pandemic and all the, the supply, the gyms, studios, et cetera, that were giving them that option to do so, when you, when you talk about a reopening, a lot of them just evaporated because they went out of business. So if your demand is still there, but your options are limited now because of just not that many brands out there that can do that for you, you can really benefit from that as a company because just the sheer supply and demand economics there. Like that's, I can attract more people to my business because Joe Schmo down the street went out of business. So they either come to me or they really don't come at all. Uh, and that's, that's, uh, was a really big part of our thesis just because of the fact that like your options are, your options are limited. Will they taper out over time? Yeah. But as of right now, it's a really big leg up for anyone who survived and opened their doors again. And exponential can help because they can, are they helping finance any of this stuff or uh, is that sort of an advantage? Like they, I don't know what, uh, if it's the right way, like sort of how could they be a crutch during, yeah, like this? a crutch during any sort of time like, uh, like that. Is that part of their proposition? Yes. Yeah, so even during COVID, they actually dropped down their, um, commission fees uh, for marketing. So it was a 2% marketing fee. During COVID, they actually dropped it down to 1%. They were doing their absolute best to try to alleviate any type of pressure they could, where they could, to the franchisees, just so they you know, didn't, didn't go out of business. Um, even during COVID, they, their, their, their loss was, as far as units, was not anything close to what other people were experiencing. So they actually did a really good job of surviving. 
And then once things started slowly opening up, uh, rules and regulations started getting uh, less tight, um, they were ready to hit the gas. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so um, they are very much aligned with the franchisee. And you know, even if you think about it, um, so the, the co-founder and the CEO, um, Anthony, uh, I always mess up his name, he's like Geisler, Geisler. Uh, he's an operator himself. And he founded studios himself. So he is, when you, when you listen to him speak on the call, you can kind of hear how compassionate he is with these franchisees because he wants them to succeed because once upon a time, he was one. Um, and he knows that if the business succeeds, the franchisee has to. Otherwise, it's a, it's a losing game here. You know, it's not like a subway franchise. It's, it's something that he's like, he's wet to. Right. And if we want to hit a little bit more management, but I'm realizing we forgot to do a valuation question. So I guess general thoughts on valuation versus their whatever financials, what they're going to do in three years. I guess maybe how do you look at their uh, valuation? Yeah. So in this day and age, um, the whole idea of EV sales multiples are kaput. Um, that, that should not be a thing anymore. Will I say that? Um, I think this last year I think this last year has eliminated. Well, well, hey, sales. well, hey, I just saw if we just do, you know, AWS fifteen times sales, just knock that out real quick. Oh yeah, you're in that camp. Yeah, I've heard the Twitter sphere is big on that. Um, but no, so uh, when it comes to exponential, they're they're adjusted EBITDA profitable, right? So carve that any way you want, right? With adjustments, um, they're expecting to be net income profitable in 2022, uh, not by not by much, but they will reach true profitability uh, fiscal year 2022. If you keep zooming out past that, right, to 23 to 24, if they're continually opening up like 230 to 250 studios every year, you know, they're expanding abroad, which they've grown from like five countries to 12 countries now. Um, they keep building up these new brands. We're, we're, where I had pegged them back in January, I was like, you know what? I could easily see them being a $30 uh, company um, within the next like, 12 to 18 months. And if you look at the chart, they got, they got pretty close to it. Um, I think they got, I think they hit like $27 a share if I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. $27 is really capped out. So they got, they got pretty close, um, because they're so strong market turmoil dropped them. But if we're looking at long-term, I've spoken to other PMs about this who also share my enthusiasm with the brand. If they can execute well, which we have no doubt that they will, um, in two to three years' time, this could easily be a forty-dollar stock, like no problem. Um, just from the, just from the sheer execution, just how asset light they are, and the operating leverage they spoke about before, it, it it only seems to get better as long as no other black swan events come around or consumers just throw their hands up in the air and ditch fitness altogether. But we don't see any of that happening. Do uh, how big are they? Uh, just in terms of market cap or enterprise value, whatever you use. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it right now, they're about a little over a billion dollars right now, um, or around a billion dollars. It keeps fluctuating. The I will admit the liquidity of this name is as great as other ones, but so, so it bounces. Um, so if you think about their growth over time, yeah, doubling, tripling that, you know, SBC, totally fine. System-wide sales are actually supposed to be reaching, um, uh, I forget exactly what it was, um, but it's, it's over it's over a billion dollars. Revenue is coming in, including the licenses, I think like a quarter of that, 30% of that. Um, so they're, they're just growing double digits. It's insane. It's, it's, it's jaw-dropping. 
And are they using stock to acquire these companies or is it all, is it cash flow or do they do it by debt? What is their general strategy with that? Yeah, so it's a bit of both. Um, one thing that I like is that when they do acquire the brand, they typically like to keep on the, the management that own that brand on board. And in order for them to do that, they offer the stock component of that, which kind of ties like basic burnout payments. Um, so if the performance is there, if the performance is aligned with what Exponential has, hey, you know, that founder gets rewarded handsomely. Um, it also helps them because like, even though they are technically cash flow positive, they don't generate much cash flow right now. Uh, their strategy is really, hey, this is get this out as quickly as you possibly can. Um, and if you have to do acquisitions, use what cash we have the balance sheet to do so. Um, and then also uh, issue or use our stock uh, if need be. But if you're looking at the most recent acquisition, $44 million, part, part cash, part stock. I mean, you're not, you're not talking big numbers here, right? So it's not, it's not alarming to me. What uh, you talked briefly about X plus, and can you maybe remind listeners what exactly that is? And then how big do you think that can be as a part of the business? Yeah, so um, there's there's two digital components of Exponential. One of them is the X Plus offering, which is the video content library of workouts um, that are offered by all the brands that people can use, um, uh, whether at their home or they can just go somewhere else, or wherever they are, they can just access it. So it's the, it's the video content library and also the um, on-demand feature of classes. Is that, like a, is that like a membership thing where you just pay for the online strictly or is it a part of joining a studio? How does that work? No, so it's actually separate. So it's a $30 a month fee um, to access it. And it's, it's what I would compare it to is literally any other um, like fitness app that you can kind of get. And I know right. like Nike is big on one. It's like, it's, it's very, if anyone uses the Nike app, whether it's a running one or a training one, et cetera, it's very much like that. Um, so that's what you're paying for. Okay. It makes sense. And then the X, what's the other one? The X pass. The X pass. So this is the one that I actually thought was a really smart idea. So X pass, if anyone that's familiar or maybe not familiar, uh, with class pass, it's essentially an in-house class pass. And for those that don't know, class pass is essentially a, uh, offering of different fitness brands that you essentially buy credits for and you use the credits to go do, um, let's say Pilates one day or yoga one day, and or you want to do boxing another day. These credits, depending on what you've paid as far as your memberships here, allow you to take advantage of switching up what brand you would like to work out uh, with that day, as opposed to, I only pay for Pure Bar or I only pay for Rumble. This this essential membership allows me to kind of go into different ones the way I would like to, when I would like to, without being wed to just the one brand. Um, so it offers optionality for those that would like to pay up, but would like uh, to diversify their workouts. Gotcha. And you may have mentioned this, and it might be different in certain areas, but how much is this X-Pass cost? And maybe do they have they given out how many members they have? Yeah, so they actually recently like went out fully with, with, I think, uh, all, almost all of their franchisees in, in, in North America, because it's kind of a no-brainer not to do it. Um, so in order to take advantage of it, there's different tiers, which gets you essentially points to use for whatever classes um, 
you're trying to sign up for. So they range anywhere from $49 a month all the way up to $140 a month. This gives you, uh, depending on again, what you, what you pay for anywhere from uh, four classes all the way up to 12 classes to take advantage of. Um, again, access to all their studios all across the country. Um, so that's, that's kind of how they've structured it. Um, and the take rate, so the split between the franchisees that opt in and the company is a 70-30 split, company getting the 30, the franchisee getting the 70. So that's where we talk about like optimizing revenue or optimizing AUV, not just for the uh, franchisee, but also the revenue for the company by being able to offer this uh, model, which helps just drive basically everything else that flows down. What are your overall thoughts on the international strategy? I know we were talking about it before we hit record. They seem to have had success in the US. Do you think they can have that? Do you think that same success can translate to other areas? And what, what have they, what has management kind of given out on that so far? Yeah. So I actually, even when you look at other consumer companies, they can get saturated in the United States and most every question that an analyst will ask or care about is what about growth outside the U.S.? How's international looking like? You know, even when it came to like Starbucks or like even like with Restoration Hardware, which I know I'm a big fan of. I know I've talked to you guys about it on Twitter as well. International is kind of the, uh, you know, like total empty white space that everybody wants a company to eventually grow into. So when you look at fitness, super big in the United States. So the runway in America is huge. But then when you, look, when you zoom out to the runway and abroad, the countries that Exponential is currently in are actually, believe it or not, some of the ones that you might not actually think they would have touched base in. And most people think like Europe is one of the more obvious uh, areas of growth for expansion. But, you know, they've, they have... Um, uh, brands in Australia, they have brands in like some parts of like Indonesia, they have parts in like, like uh, Dubai, South Korea, Japan, et cetera. They have like all, I, I might be leaving out some other, from other countries there since they're at 12, but they're in, they're just getting a foothold in these places and strategically growing it out. Um, if we look at kind of like how many uh, like licenses they're contractually obligated to open, we're talking about over a thousand already um, with 2,100 studios being planned on opening. So the growth there is massive. And I think over time, uh, they'll, they'll essentially be doing the exact same thing that they're doing here, right? It's just in other places in the world. I don't see why fitness is not a big thing anywhere else. And given that their brand of um, 10 you know, portfolio companies would not be able to appease some type of consumer abroad. Right. And is, I guess I'm thinking because each, a lot of cult, you know, cultures are different. Are they, have they mentioned anything about adapting to different cultural fitness styles or it might be too early for that? And are they trying to add on this digital overlay for say you're in the Middle East, you still have access to a lot of the stuff that has been built up for the United States consumer over the last decade? Yeah. So to, to your first point, I'm actually glad you brought that up. So um, Body Fit Training, which is their most recent roll-up acquisition that they did, is actually an Australian brand. Um, they, the, the owner over there, um, they just saw an opportunity because they love the concept. So at, while they're actually building it out abroad, they're actually bringing that brand from abroad to the United States. It's actually not, it was, it was not a concept in the United States. So when you're talking about the strategy that they have, 
um, it's very much taking taking a concept from anywhere and bring it all together where it makes sense. And that's where they saw one happening. When it comes to the to digital component, uh, they're more focused on making that available in the United States and making sure that all that rolls out within their core market before they really put uh, more pedals to the metal abroad. But to, that just gives you more context to kind of like how they see these concepts and where they see they can grow. Um, so it goes, it goes back and forth. Capital, capital allocation is obviously a big, um, it's very important for a roll-up based company. So what are your thoughts on management and um, I guess their capital allocation thus far? Like, have you, do you like them? Have you enjoyed their strategy? Yeah, so if you actually look at their management team, most of like senior leadership have actually been either an operator in the past uh, of a fitness franchise, or a fitness, I'm sorry, a fitness um, brand, or they actually were part of the brand that Exponential acquired. So if you're talking about you know their knowledge and know-how of the business, it's actually relatively high because, I mean, the CEO. Anthony, I mean, he he started at LA Boxing, which some people might be familiar with it, sold it, um, started Club Pilates, partnered with a private equity firm, and he's just been growing it since then. Other 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 um, senior leadership started with the brands that they acquired, have stayed on to be either like the COO, president, et cetera. So they they know what they're doing. And I'm not gonna give them too much credit, right? But they but they're not they're not oblivious, like I like some could argue with other management teams of what's going on in the industry and how to make it better and how to optimize things. They very much know how to do it. Um, and I think with their, with their strategy of how they're actually um, allocating capital is working right now. Um, even if they're in the middle of the most recent earnings call, I mean, the stock dropped, <laughs> which for no reason, literally, um, I was speaking to other PMs and for like every, everything on this call, made sense. So like what happened? And if you look at the chart, it quickly retraced. Um, but this thing's, this thing's a slam dunk with the type of management team and how they, how they see things going forward and where they see the opportunity. So I have no issues there. And I think it's pretty brilliant for what they've done so far. Okay. And oh, Ryan, you, I guess I have the final question here, but sure. Else? No, I, I think just the, the last question, because it sounds, the, the strategy seems sound. It seems like they are less susceptible to the ebbs and flows of fitness trends being that they're so diversified. What, how does this end up being a bad investment? Like what could go wrong here? Yeah. So there's a few and that can change based on what perspective is. So number one, some type of COVID resurgence happens, right. And it puts everybody back indoors. Um, Monkey box. They still- <laughs> hey, yeah, maybe monkeypox. I mean, I've seen pictures. It looks tough. Um, but so, for instance, like that can push people back indoors. You still have the digital component, but that's nowhere near, you know, the, the level of money that you're getting when people go indoors. So that's number one. Do I see that happening? No, but that, that is a risk. Secondly, which is really big, which is um, which was one of the bold cases of Peloton actually was that the the people that teach these classes they're in such high demand right now that you, you really got to pay up for them. Uh, I know like some Peloton instructors were getting paid like half a million dollars just to teach for Peloton or like do the, do the classes for Peloton. So if you're talking about making sure you can acquire and retain top talent, uh, that's another risk because I'm not sure about you guys, but when I go to a gym 
and there's somebody who there who remembers my name. I'm like, I don't even know who you are, but I like this place so much better because of that, that, you know, pseudo relationship that we have. Like I just feel better about coming there, you know? Um, and, uh, if we talk about, uh, the other one, it's more like the consumer taste changing, which I know I've mentioned before, which they do have a natural hedge to because of the fact that like, they just have, um, that they're, different portfolio of brands. But for instance, it's for some, for some reason, consumers are just like, you know what? I hate Pilates now, or I hate yoga, et cetera. Um, that can obviously hurt the business. Um, and then one thing I will mention too is kind of, we haven't seen it yet. We might, it's a very real risk, is the kind of cannibalization amongst the digital arm of the business and the actual in-person uh, arm of the business. So we will have to see in the coming quarters kind of how that plays out. But if um, more people sign up for the digital offering than let's say pay for the in-person studio, um, strict membership, then things might need to change. Uh, maybe the take rate might change, et cetera. But right now, there's, there's really been no mention of concern about that, but we'll see what happens in the future. So those are kind of the biggest things that I see that can really put a deck in this, uh, in this thesis. Do you see any world where Exponential owns Peloton in the future? <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I hope not, right? You, hope not. Not. you don't want that inventory problem, right? <laughs> oh my God. I, I, I have taken a lot of heat on Twitter for the short cases that I've made and Peloton being one of them. It, it, I mean, you talk about a dumpster fire that's just not going to be able to put out and there's so many people behind it and they're saying like amazon should buy it they're saying apple should buy it they're saying even planet fitness they're just saying any anybody who has money to buy this <laughs> someone thing. please like, buy it if anything <laughs> or if anything i would have been worried well maybe this would have been a good outcome for exponential fitness they get bought up for 100 percent premium by peloton while peloton was at a 50 billion dollar market cap that seemed like a decently plausible scenario because they were making all these grand ambitions about how they're going to dominate all of fitness so um i don't know but that, was, that would have been a good outcome for exponential shareholders maybe but i don't know oh, i would have been happy yeah. oh yeah i would have been happy i mean like i'm still up on the year a year for even after the even after the pullback just because I, I kept we just kept buying more when it was down um but no no world would that ever happen i think i think the team at exponential is looking at the Peloton management and are not only a learning from what they've they've done wrong, not that there's too much similarity because one's asset light, one's asset heavy, um, but looking at being like, wow, this if this doesn't if this doesn't back up our assumptions on consumer trends for a reopening play, then I don't know what isn't. Um, yeah. So it's pretty wild to see. So that's why I have that that pair trade going on. Okay. Well, I think, wrap it up, yeah. Yeah, I think that's all the questions we have. Paul, where can uh, people keep up with you? What's the Substack called? Yeah. So um, you post our research on Substack uh, under Cedar Grove Capital. Um, so you can find us there. It's free to subscribe. I don't, I don't charge anything. Just trying to spread the news. Um, and if you want to, if you're a part of Twitter, it's just my name. So at Paul Cerro, C E R R O. Um, and very vocal about the our thoughts and our positions on there. So it's a good follow. follow. Yeah. It's a good follow. I recommend RH good right up on RH. If I remember correctly. Yep. Hasn't panned out so far just for other reasons, but yeah, the company is still solid. <laughs> the write up was the good. Right, no, the write up was the It's all about the good writing. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Well, that's going to do it. I want to hit the disclosure here. Uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. So anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. We will see you guys next time. Thank you.